We're continuing to work through 1 Corinthians, and we come today to chapter 6, and our reading begins at verse 12. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, it's page 1148 in the Pew Bible. <coughs> Paul writes, everything is permissible for me, but not Everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it's said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. <clears throat> All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Amen. Our society is full of slogans. If it feels good, do it. It's all right, so long as nobody gets hurt. Charity begins at home. And it's not just with regard to morality, uh, but living here in Northern Ireland, we're very familiar with phrases and sayings and slogans which represent one side of political opinion or the other. No surrender. Our day will come. And a slogan is really a form of intellectual shorthand. It bypasses the intellectual process or the reasoned argument, and it announces only the conclusion. And slogans have become shorthands for attitudes, for positions, for behaviors that people adopt. Some slogans are good, and the reasoning behind them is very sound. Others are not good because the reasoning behind them is defective. And some slogans are good if they're applied in the right way, but not so good if applied or understood in the wrong way. So here are the Corinthians. And the Corinthians had a couple of slogans that they used. One was good, but the way they were applying it wasn't good. The other slogan was bad. So I want to tell you about these two slogans. The first slogan is probably the one which Paul himself had used in emphasizing the freedom which Christian, Christians enjoy in Christ. Everything is permissible for me. Uh, you remember Paul's story prior to his conversion? He had based his life on his ability to keep the laws and the regulations of the Old Testament. And as a Pharisee, he had been scrupulously careful to keep every rule and every regulation. But his life had been miserable. And then he came to see that he could never produce enough obedience to qualify himself for heaven, and that only one person, Jesus Christ, 
had the kind of righteousness that satisfied God. So when he committed his life to Christ, it meant that all of Christ's righteousness became his. All the perfect law-keeping of Christ was credited to him. All the burden of keeping God's law fell off his shoulders and he was free. The chains of a do-it-yourself salvation and a do-it-yourself religion were all gone because Jesus paid it all. Everything is permissible for me, he used to say. I don't have to keep the God's law anymore in order to earn my salvation. I'm free to live now without a burden. But what had happened was that some Christians in Corinth had picked up on this slogan and were using it in a way that was never intended. Everything is permissible for me was being used to justify all kinds of behaviors and all kinds of immorality. And particularly it was being used to justify sexual immorality. And Paul had to deal with this issue of a good slogan being used in a bad way to justify a sinful lifestyle. Paul doesn't retract his slogan. He doesn't retreat from being a champion of Christian liberty. He makes it clear that the everything in the slogan never included immorality. You just have to look back to verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6 uh, to see that those who continue in an immoral lifestyle will never enter the kingdom of God. So Paul says that Christian freedom doesn't mean absolute freedom. Our generation thinks that freedom means the absence of all boundaries and all constraints, and that's just not true. We prize our freedom. We prize our freedom of speech, but that freedom is not absolute. It doesn't give you the right to shout fire in a crowded building when there is no fire. It doesn't give you the right to threaten or abuse or slander your neighbor. Every freedom is exercised within certain boundaries. And the two boundaries that Paul places around Christian freedom in this passage are the boundary of edification and the boundary of enslavement. He says there's the boundary of edification. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Even though a particular action may not be inherently wrong, it doesn't necessarily mean that I should engage in it. The question you have to ask is this, does it edify me? Does it build me up? Does it edify others? Is it profitable? Is it beneficial for me and for the people among whom I live? There's nothing wrong with a Christian playing golf. But when he finds that he becomes so preoccupied with that that he has no time to read his Bible or to pray, no time for his wife or his family, then it's wrong. And if he becomes so hooked by golf or any other sport that prevents him from coming to church on the Lord's Day or being present in his prayer group, then it is not edifying. It's not beneficial. Something innocent can become harmful because it's crossed the boundary of edification. The other, the other boundary is enslavement. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything, says Paul. And the question we need to ask of any and every practice is this, am I in control of it, or is it in control of me? If any practice controls and dominates my life, it's no longer a freedom, it's a slavery. I've got to say no to it. You see, freedoms are only freedoms when we're free to say no to them. And that's why we say that only Christ and Christianity 
can bring true freedom. Every other God in this world brings slavery and shackles. Whether it's the God of sport or the God of entertainment or the God of personal gratification, ultimately, it snaps on the handcuffs, it turns the key in the lock, and it imprisons people, it controls them, it dominates their life. And Christ sets us free by giving us the grace and the power to overcome sin. So Paul's first point here is to correct the use of a good slogan. Everything is permissible for me is a precious statement of Christian freedom, but it must never be used to justify sin. Edification and enslavement are the two uh, boundaries which protect Christian liberty and Christian freedom. The other slogan which Paul attacks is altogether a bad slogan. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. What exactly does that mean? Well, it was the Corinthian way of saying that when we engage in immorality, we're just satisfying the needs of our bodily appetites, nothing more. Just as the stomach was made for food and food for the stomach, so sex was made for the body and the body was made for sex. And you can see how Paul's words here are highly significant, how extremely relevant they are to us today in a world where immorality is accepted, where immorality is common, uh, where it's socially acceptable. The pressure is on Christians to do what everyone else is doing. And in that kind of atmosphere, how can Christians uphold and keep biblical standards? How can we maintain biblical principles of purity before marriage and faithfulness within marriage? Is there any theological principle which might allow me to engage in an immoral relationship? And sometimes people argue like this, God has given me certain appetites. He's given me drives. He's given me desires. What's wrong with satisfying those appetites? Isn't it the way God has made me? Why should I deprive myself? And gratifying one's sexual appetite is no different from strolling to the fridge for a snack when you're hungry. If it's not wrong to eat when you're hungry, then it's not wrong to satisfy your sexual urges and your desires either. And by using that slogan, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, the Corinthian Christians were trying to justify immorality. And all seemed to be fine until Paul blows their argument out of the water in the verses that follow. He shows them why that slogan doesn't work for Christians. And he gives them six reasons why immorality is wrong. So here we are, it's 20 past 12. We've got six reasons to get through in the next 10 minutes. Can we do it? Let me give them to you very quickly. Number one, the purpose of the body. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, says Paul, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. If you like slogans so much, says Paul, then try this one. The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It's just not valid to equate your appetite for food and your appetite for sex. Sex is not to the body what food is to the stomach. Both food and stomach will be destroyed, but right now, God has a purpose for our bodies. And the purpose for your body is to serve the Lord. It's an instrument through which we bring glory to God. On the one hand, the body is for the Lord, and on the other hand, the Lord is for the body, and the body cannot function without him. So there's this close connection between the Lord whom we serve and how we use our bodies. 
And if you're a Christian believer, then you need to know that your body is for Christ, to belong to him, to serve him. And Christ is for your body, to inhabit it and to glorify it. That's why it's sinful to take the body out of service to Christ and use it in a way which is displeasing to him. Secondly, the destiny of the body. Paul says that the purpose which God has for our bodies is not thwarted, it's not finished at death. And he reminds the Corinthians of where we're headed. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Since the body and the Lord are so closely connected, they share the same destiny. Just as the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, so our bodies will be raised and given eternal glory. Whatever's true of Jesus is also true of those who are in Jesus. So our bodies are not disposable in the ultimate sense. They're the raw material for a glorious new creation. Some very well-off people may pay huge amounts of money to have their corpses frozen and preserved for later resuscitation. But Paul has a different destiny in view. <clears throat> he believes in the resurrection of the body, his own weather-beaten, whiplashed, fever-racked, fragile human frame, he believes will one day be raised, as well as the bodies of these arrogant and sinful Corinthians. One day, Christians will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And when we mourn the passing of a dear loved one, we remember those wonderful words in the catechism. The souls of believers are at their death, made perfect in holiness, to immediately pass into glory, while their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in the grave until the resurrection. You and I, Christian brother and sister, we're destined for a new world and a new creation. And in the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And with that destiny awaiting our bodies, we should not use them for sinful and immoral behavior right now. Number three, Christians are the body of Christ. The human body of a Christian and the Lord Jesus Christ are so closely intertwined that our bodies are actually limbs of Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself, he says in verse 15. Or verse 17, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And that word unite there means glued together. Christ and his church are glued together to become one body. You remember how in Ephesians 5, Paul says the union between a man and his wife in marriage is such that the two become one. And that's a pointer, that's a symbol, that's a picture of the perfect union and marriage of oneness between Christ and his church. So if my body is actually the body of Christ, how can I misuse it? in an act of sexual immorality, asks Paul. When you Corinthians go to these immoral women at the pagan temple, you're actually guilty of taking Christ's body and uniting it with her. Can you think of anything more unwholesome? Can you think of anything more sordid than that? Putting it simply, when a Christian commits adultery and immorality, he involves the whole body of Christ in his sin. And it's this understanding of the intimate union 
between Christ and a Christian that underpins Christian morality in this whole area of sexual ethics. Why is it wrong for a Christian to marry an unbeliever? Why is adultery wrong? Why is sex before marriage wrong? Because there's no true spiritual unity, no spiritual oneness between the people involved. There should be no one flesh relationship and intimacy except between those who have been declared to be one in the covenant of marriage. And the problem in Corinth was that there was intimacy without intention. There was communion without commitment. Because the Bible's view is that when a man and a woman join their bodies, the entire personality is involved. It's not just a physical act. It involves the whole person. And when a Christian commits an immoral act, it's particularly reprehensible because it profanes Christ, the one to whom the believer is united. Number four, immorality is a sin against one's own body. All other sins a man commits are outside of his own body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Immorality is not just a sin with the body or in the body, but it's a sin, says Paul, against the body. So if you've got a beautiful car and you break the speed limit with it, you have sinned in the car, but not against the car. The car is designed to go fast. You've simply allowed it to do what it was designed to do. You can try telling it to the traffic cop whenever he stops you for speeding. May not cut too much ice with him. I'm simply allowing the car to do what it was designed to do, officer. Uh, Why should I not? But if you take your beautiful car and you empty the contents of your wheelie bin uh, into it and take it to the skip, you would be sinning against the car. It would be a desecration of the car. It violates the purpose for which that car was made. It wasn't made to be a skip wasn't made to carry rubbish. It was made to carry people. And that's exactly what's wrong with immorality, says Paul. Since it belongs to the Lord, the body is being desecrated. It's being used wrongly. You're sinning against your own body. Then number five, the body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? whom you have received from God. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in the Christian. The Christian's body is the sanctuary, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, it shouldn't be abused or misused or purposefully injured. In the past, uh, Christians have used this verse to try to prohibit all kinds of practices that they believe might damage the body. Uh, Christians have used this to speak against smoking. Uh, I remember visiting an elderly woman in Carmoney Uh, She never traveled too far from her pack of cigarettes and her ashtray. And she used to say to me, Mr. Carson, will a cigarette keep me out of heaven? And I used to say, no, Dolly, but it might get you out of this life a bit sooner than you really want to leave. And in that sense, this verse could be used to prohibit drunkenness, gluttony, even boxing. Have you thought of that? I remember debating with my father as a teenager whether boxing was a legitimate sport for a Christian to be involved in or to support. He didn't think that Christians should follow boxing or support boxing. He believed it was an unnecessary abuse of the human body. And my son, Luke, definitely doesn't agree with that. He thinks that training for boxing, training for the martial arts, is a great way of looking after your body. So you might want to debate that one. You see, all kinds of things are damaging to the welfare of the body. But keep our text in context. 
What Paul's writing about here is intended to counter immoral sexual behavior. That's the primary issue that Paul's addressing. We ought not to make it say more than what the author intends. The truth is, says Paul, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit's in you. You just can't use your body whatever way you like. And finally, number six, your body isn't yours anyway. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Paul's final answer is the great answer based on the doctrine of redemption. We used to be slaves, slaves to ourselves, slaves to our desires, slaves to self-indulgence, slaves to sinful passions, but we've been set free by our new master. He paid the ransom for us. So we've been taken out of this slave market of sin. We're no longer up for sale to the highest bidder. We've been bought at a price. And now we've got a new master to serve. And he intends that every physical faculty we have should be used to express the glory of God. So far from despising our bodies, we're committed to using them in his service. We're not to pander to them. We're not to make excuses for them. We're not to use them in an indulgent or abusive way. We are to honor God with our bodies. If we had longer, we might reflect on this. It means a good diet means no gluttony. How many sermons have you heard on gluttony in your lifetime? We're not very good. We're very good at condemning people who take too much strong drink, and rightly so. But are we as controlled with regard to what we eat? Honoring your God with your body means looking after it, healthy exercise, good rest. Don't abuse your body. But supremely, Paul says here, it means that you're not to be immoral in the way you use your body. Your body isn't yours to use as you like or as you choose. It now belongs to Christ. Jesus has purchased you. Jesus has bought you. He has redeemed you. You've got to live for him. Folks, you know that in this whole area we're being inundated with ungodly wisdom and ungodly practices. And it's very easy for us to use the slogans and the statements of the world to justify our sinful behavior. And so Paul knows how we're made. The Holy Spirit who inspired these words knows how we are put together. And he has one brief command in the middle of this passage, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, sometimes we just have to run away from the sin and temptation. And if flee from sexual immorality is the negative aspect of Christian living, then Paul's final clause in the passage is the challenging positive aspect. Verse 20, honor God with your body. You've been redeemed by Christ. Use your body to display positively the glory and the holiness and the purity of the one who died to save you. Perhaps today, as we talk together, you're aware of God speaking to you. And you may not have honored God with your body in the way this passage describes. In fact, if you're being honest, you say, I have sinned. Shamefully, I have sinned. And as God speaks to you today, you may feel guilty. You may feel ashamed of your behavior in the past or even your current behavior in the present. 
What you need to remember is that your sin will be dealt with in one of two places. Either it will be dealt with at the cross of Christ, where as you confess it and repent of it, the guilt of your sin will be laid on him and you will be forgiven. He will pay it all. He takes your place and you're set free. And if it's not dealt with there at the cross, then there's only one other place it will be dealt with. And that will be at the final judgment when you will bear the guilt yourself and you'll suffer condemnation. So it's crucial today that your sin does not remain unconfessed and unforgiven. You need to be washed clean. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthian church back in verse 10 of this passage? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And I imagine if the Apostle Paul were here in church today and he knew the details of our lives, he could say exactly the same. There are people here today who have been guilty of all these sins that excluded them from the kingdom of God. But thanks be to God, we've been washed and we've been cleansed and we've been justified. Our sins, though they are many, have all been laid on Jesus. He has paid it all. So let me ask you, is that your testimony? Have you been washed? Or do you still stand guilty outside the kingdom? You need to flee to Jesus urgently today. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the very clear, sometimes painfully clear instruction of your word. And we come to you as we are, Lord. You know our hearts, you know our lives, you know every behavior we've ever engaged in. You know everything about us, Lord. And we thank you for Jesus who redeems us. Lord, as your people, help us to honor God with our bodies. Help us to live the holy, pure lives to which we've been called in Christ. Help us to understand that our union with Christ is so crucial in terms of how we understand our Christian lives. And increasingly, may we look to him and rest upon him. In his great and precious name we pray. Amen.